please stand for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> Psalm 11, to the choir master of David. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes, see, his, eye, his eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. This is the word of the Lord. We all go through seasons of distress. We're either in, coming out of, or will enter such seasons. Most of us live on a roller coaster of highs and lows with periods of normalcy in between. And the Bible regularly addresses these seasons. The psalmists pour out their hearts before us in all of their angst. And they share their journeys which invariably end up in resting in God. Men and women in scripture often walk through swamplands of despair as either positive or negative models for us. Specific passages direct us with lessons about responding to anxiety, finding purpose in trials, or discovering hope when all seems hopeless. If you study the scriptures, you're probably not going to hear anything new from Psalm 11 that you haven't already heard. However, Psalm 11 brings these truths that God offers us together, and it provides for us a handbook for our seasons of despair. Let's always carry that handbook with us. Let's pray. Our Father, we are on various parts of our journey. Some of us are, are in distress this morning. Some of us are relieved to have come out of it, but no seasons will come again. Others are about to enter into these seasons. Lord, minister your word to our hearts. Teach us, lead us to make you our refuge. In Christ we pray, amen. <clears throat> Psalm 11 is written by David during a season of his life when his life was in danger. It's most likely written when Saul were, was pursuing him. So think about the distress that he must have been in. Psalms express a lot of the emotions, David. In 1 Samuel, he talks about feeling like a flea that's being pursued in the mountains like a hunter would pursue partridge. He speaks about a resolution that Saul is going to take his life. He was deeply in despair. And what we'll see in Psalm 11, we'll see his response to that season. 
and it's a model for us to trust God as our refuge, to reject self-centered counsel, and to walk the path that makes God our refuge. Psalm opens with simple words. In the Lord, I take refuge. Jim already brought out in his prayer how, how that brings him to think of what I was thinking. Martin Luther, a mighty fortress is our God. A bulwark never failing, our helper he amid the flood of mortal ills prevailing. When the storms of life swirl around us, God can be our refuge, our fortress, our shelter. We can find peace, comfort, and confidence when we turn to him as our refuge because he is greater than our storms. and He is on our side. When I was uh, in elementary school, I'd often get in arguments with neighbor. Actually, he might, get, he might get angry at me, and he says, I'm going to beat you up. And so I'd say, well, if you beat me up, I'm going to get my big brother after you. And he would say, yeah, but I've got three older brothers, and they would beat up your brother. i say, well, I'll get the police. And he says, well... I'll get the army. And he's, I might say, well, I'll get the Navy, the Marines. And, and then he might say, well, I'll get God. Okay, that's the end of all arguments, isn't it? If God is on our side, who can be against us? That's what Paul says in Romans 8.31. See, there's no one or nothing that is greater than God and he is on our side. We know that because he sent his son to die for us on the cross. He paid the greatest price. He shows us he is on our side. And that will never change. It's Romans 8.35 says, Who shall separate us from the love of God in Christ? Shall tribulation, distress, persecution, or famine, nakedness, danger, or sword? No, in all these things, we are conquerors. None of these stand a chance against God. So what, what does it mean to make God our refuge? I think it's pictured in verses 38 and 39 of Romans 8. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels or rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height or depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we have a rest and trust in those words, we are making God our refuge. David declared, God is my refuge. For, us, for him to do that, he had to first refuse the self-centered counsel that he'd get from others. The rest of verse 1, we read, How do you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? See, apparently David was receiving counsel that was counter 
to his finding God as his refuge. They said, find another refuge. Flee to the mountain. That's where your refuge will be. This advice may have come from a friend, friends, or it actually may have come from within David himself. It seems reasonable. The only path to safety is to get away. And on occasion, David did flee. However, in this case, it was bad advice. See, when a, a bird flees to the mountain, it leaves its home here, and it makes its nest in the mountain, never to return. For David to have fled to the mountains meant he would have left and made a permanent home where he felt safe, never to return and claim his rightful throne. The counselors seem to have good reasons for their counsel. We see these in verses 2 and 3. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They've fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Look, David, the armies are after you. They're well-equipped. They can't wait to shoot their arrows at you, and you will never know when they're coming at you because they're going to shoot from the dark. You'll be in constant fear, constantly living under the threat of your life being taken like that by an arrow. And there's nowhere you can turn for help. The foundations have been destroyed. So what does it mean the foundations have been destroyed? Well, if your life was threatened, you'd call the police. David couldn't call the police of that day because Saul directed them. So we might go to a judge to seek justice and get a restraining order. But the judges were all beholding the king who was pursuing him. The armies, oh, the armies are what the king's using to take your life. See, the foundations of the civil society were all gone. It was topsy-turvy. The king and all at his disposal were not being protective and just. David had nowhere to turn. That's what they're saying. What can the righteous do, David? The answer is flee to the mountains. It's bad counsel. So what's wrong with that counsel? It's the source of the counsel, the reason for the counsel. The goal of the counsel was David-centered and not God-centered. The goal was that David would be protected not that God would be glorified. Very often, we as Christians give counsel to people to protect them, to help them feel better, rather than to glorify God and help them on their journey toward Christ-likeness. Christian counselor Timothy Lane said that 
when he begins a counseling session, he often has to undo all the counsel that Christians gave his client because they had the wrong goal in mind. So when you offer advice and counsel to a Christian or even to yourself, what's the goal? Is it self-protection, safety, security? Or is it to help a person walk with God, finding refuge in God, and allowing God's trials to do the work he intended in their lives? In Psalm 11, David receives some bad advice. Fortunately, he could see through it because he had a God-centered goal, which included making God his refuge. And so in the rest of the psalm, we show David's pathway to making God our refuge. First, know that God is sovereign. When God's our refuge, we trust that he's in control. But we don't always feel that way, do we? Especially when we're being battered by the storms of life, it's easier to look at the waves that are crashing on us rather than it is to look at God. Our emotions are blown by a whirlwind of circumstance and we wonder, God, are you really there? God, do you care? God, are you, you engaged? If you ever feel that way, you're in good company. It's the way the Jewish people felt in Isaiah 40 when, they, when we read, Why do you say, O Jacob, and complain, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord. My right is it's disregarded. By my God. David expressed even stronger feelings in Psalm 22 when he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? It's easy to feel abandoned. Jesus echoed these words when he was on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When we are in trials and travails, it's easy to respond to the advice, flee to the mountains. Is that advice that we follow for our security and safety? Or do we turn to God as our refuge? Instead of looking at the circumstances, we need to look at God. That's what David does in verse 4. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. These verses reveal five characteristics of God that we can depend upon. First, he is loving and faithful. See, he is the Lord. Now, when you read LORD in all capitals, it refers to the personal name of God, Yahweh. 
Do we all have personal names? And when somebody calls us by name, we know it's relational. The Lord, Yahweh. When Moses met God in the burning bush, Kids in Kids Journey said, don't call it a burning bush. It wasn't consumed. It didn't burn. It's the fiery bush. But when he was there and God spoke to him, he gave him his name. And then it says in Exodus 34, 6 through 7, the Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, the Lord, Yahweh, the Lord, Yahweh, a merciful and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. So whenever you think of God, realize He's loving and faithful. You can trust He wants the best for you. The Lord is on His throne in heaven. The Lord is king. He is sovereign. David knew that God, not Saul, not his circumstances, were in control. God is the absolute ruler. Saul couldn't thwart his plans. No one can thwart God's plans. Nothing in life takes place outside of God's sovereign and loving plan. So whenever you feel like Israel thinking, my way is hidden from the Lord, remember God's response in Isaiah 40. Have you not known, have you not heard, the Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth, he does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. God is loving, sovereign, and all-wise. His understanding is unsearchable. He's, no one can fathom it. You know, we won't be able to grasp why God ordains everything that he ordains. We won't be able to grasp why God allows certain circumstances into our lives. But he does on occasion give us an understanding of why he allows trials into our lives. He has a purpose for them. And it's important that not only do we know God is sovereign, but he has a purpose for those trials. And we need to value God's testing. Verse 4C and 5. His eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. The Lord tests the righteous and the wicked. So, why do instructors give tests? There's usually two reasons. They are measuring whether you pass or fail, whether they move you on or they move you out. And that test will show and justify their actions and their grades. Second, tests are for the student to learn 
what they know and what they don't know, what they need to know. God's testing is for both reasons. The tests show us where we need to grow. And sometimes he tests the foundations of our lives. Where do we turn in times of trouble? Where do we turn for truth and for purpose? Who and what is the foundation of our lives? And that's the test that David was going through as he fled from Saul. Who, to whom is he going to turn? Is he going to turn to the mountains for his safety or is he going to turn to God himself? Often God brings us to the edge of despair like David where there's nowhere else to turn so we can realize that there's nowhere else we need to turn but to God. Do you have tests in your life for that reason? Where are you turning? David passed the test because God was his foundation and refuge. And God tests our character to show us where we need to grow to become more like Jesus Christ. James 1, 3 and 4, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing, that you may be like Jesus Christ. See, James could find joy in his trials. He said we could find joy in our trials because his goal wasn't self-protection. His goal was transformation. That he could become more and more like the image of Jesus Christ and he realized that testing produced that in his life. God tests our relationship with him. Are we about ourselves or are we about God? Do we worship him for what he gives us? Or do we worship him simply because he's God? That's the test that Job was enduring during his travails. The book opens with Satan coming into the presence of God and God saying, have you seen Job and the righteous Job? And Satan says, yeah, the only reason Job is righteous is because you bought him off. You've blessed him with so much that he serves you, he worships you to get more and more and more. But if you took those things from him and you took his health, he would curse you. He doesn't worship you for who you are. He worships you for what he gets from you. And God says, okay, take his possessions, take his family, take his health. Let's see. And Job struggles. He struggles mightily. But we see the ultimate declaration in Job 13, 15. Though he slay me, I will hope in him. I'll worship him no matter what. In the process, he learned a lesson about questioning God. But he proved to the angelic realm, to everyone who's ever read that book, we worship God because of who he is, not what we get. Is God testing you in that way? Tests show where we need to grow, but they also determine whether a student passes or fails. 
God tests the wickeds, and the results are found in verse 6. Let him rain coals on the wicked, fire and sulfur. A scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Shall be the portion of their cup. Cup regularly is a reference to the wrath of God. And we see that wrath poured out on the coals, the fire, the sulfur, which brings us back to the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah when God completely destroyed it because of their sin. It's imagery of hell itself. The wrath of God poured out, the judgment of God falls on the wicked. The wicked are those who knowingly or unknowingly refute God, follow their own path, their own path of sin. They fail the test. And though they might feel safe here, they might feel in control, the judgment of God awaits everyone who is wicked. The righteous pass the test and receive their reward. Verse 7, For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteous deeds, the upright shall behold his face. Now as we read this, you may feel like I feel. Lord, am I with the wicked or the righteous? And I look inside my heart, I look at my deeds, and I say, Lord, I'm, I'm among the wicked. I'm not righteous. I'm not upright. I, I'm not always doing righteous deeds. I, I'm not holy as you are holy, Lord. None of us is. None of us is holy as God. None of us are acceptable in his sight. That's why Jesus was sent for us. Jesus was sent to take all that sin upon himself, to take the judgment of God upon himself so he could look at us, forgive us, and call us righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21 for our sake he made Christ to be sin. Christ who never sinned. To be sin so that in him we may become the righteousness of God. So we are with the righteous if we believe in Jesus Christ. If we trust him for our relationship with God. Not our works. Not our personal holiness. We stand with the righteous. And the reward of the righteous is to see the face of God. Seeing the face of God refers to being in God's presence. It speaks of a deep intimacy with God. The intimacy that we were created to experience. As I've often said, God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been in an eternal loving relationship. That's why God himself is love. And he created us to draw us into that intimacy into that relationship with God. When we see his face, we are in an intimate relationship with God. Again, if you're like me, you may say, 
I don't always feel that. I, I really wish I could see the face of God and I could be flooded with that sense of intimacy and closeness. It's a journey. It's a journey. Yes, we need to look to the cross and realize the vastness of God's love for us. That's why Paul prays in Ephesians that we might be filled with the fullness of God because we might know the heights and depths and width and breadths of his incomprehensible love. So we, we turn to the cross for his love. Then we live and we abide in that love, as Jesus said. And we continue to behold him, as Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, to behold him and as we keep him in mind, as we, we look at him, keep him foremost, we begin to become like him. And then, if you don't feel it here, you will one day. As First John promises that we'll become like him because we will see him as he is. We will see the face of God in Jesus Christ. Psalm 11 is a handbook for us in our seasons of distress. But it should also draw us to the foot of the cross because it anticipates Christ and his crucifixion. Like David... Those who honored Christ were those who were seeking his life. Those who should have honored Christ were those who were seeking his life. Like David, Jesus made God his refuge. Like David, he received man-centered counsel that was motivated by self-protection. Remember Peter? Jesus talked about how he would suffer and die at the hands of the religious leaders. And Peter said, no, that may never be. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Because you're not, you're not interested in the things of God. You're, you're just trying to protect me. He rejected that counsel. Like David, he saw that the wicked would drink the cup of God's wrath. And Jesus' response was to drink that cup for us. In the garden, he struggled with that. He said, my father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, your will be done, not mine. And a moment later, he, he, would, he would lift the cup with his disciples and say, this is the cup, my blood, shed for the remission of your sins. He drank that cup of wrath. Like David, he was passionate about intimacy with God. He just always longed to be with the Father and to bring us into that same relationship. Hebrews 12, 2 says, For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy set before him, that joy is, is us. He wanted to bring us into the intimacy that he had with the Father. But that joy was returning to the Father, having fulfilled the Father's will, glorifying the Father. He couldn't wait to return. And he rose from the dead, and he ascended, and today he is with the Father. Make God your refuge. 
He is seated on his throne, and his son is at his right hand. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of encouragement, these words of hope, this handbook. May we keep its truth ever close so that when our, we're in our times of despair, we, we find you are our refuge. You are on the throne. You love us. Nothing escapes you. You are for us. And that would draw us to always being for you making our lives not about ourselves, but about your glory. Making it not about our comfort, but about growing to become like Jesus Christ. To you be the glory, honor forever. Amen.